The views and opinions of this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers. There is substantial risk of loss in trading futures and options, which you should carefully consider prior to trading. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into Market Talk. Thanks for joining us here today on the program. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. We are spending time here today at the Northern Corn and Soy Expo in Fargo, North Dakota. And we're going to have a few conversations here from the expo on today's program. Also, we have some of our conversations that we haven't heard yet from my time at the agmarket.net conference uh, earlier this week in Nashville, Tennessee. Coming up on today's show, we're going to hear from Brian Burke from John Stewart and Associates. Also, Robert Schmall with Ag Market, Ag Dairy going to join us. Uh, we had those conversations earlier this week in Nashville. So all that more coming up on the program. Right now, though, joining us here for a conversation, he's the Vice President of the U.S. Grains Council, Kerry Sifferath. Kerry, it's good to see you again. Hope you're doing well. Uh, great to be here in Fargo today. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, trade and some of the things you are keeping an eye on. Of course, U.S. Grains Council does so much uh, wonderful work when it comes to trade for our, our U.S. farmers and, and expanding markets and opening new markets. Uh, but I know we have some challenges out there right now. I think that's a, a place we should start. I know a lot of folks are asking about it between the low water on the Panama Canal. We have the issues in the Middle East and having a lot of ships go around the Horn of Africa, things yep. like that. There's there's quite a bit going on logistically right now, isn't uh, there? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, the, the low water in Panama, and you know, it's most likely not going to be raining enough until we move into the rainy season in May, which means we aren't going to see you know, much improvement probably till June or July in Panama. Um, and then as vessels are trying to, having to go, not be able to go through the Panama Canal, um, and now what's going on in the Red Sea and people trying to avoid the Suez Canal and that, yeah, people, vessels are going around uh, around the Horn of Africa to get up into the Asia-Pacific region. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, and because of that, you're seeing, you know, the Japans, the South Koreas, the Taiwans, um, and China is usually a big shipper, especially soybeans, but even corn and sorghum off the P&W. But even, uh, you know, our our largest corn market in Central America, Guatemala, the, the Pacific ports of Colombia, they're now, you know, it's very rare to see corn uh, being loaded for Guatemala, El Salvador, Colombia off the P&W, but because they normal, their, their ports and their feed industry is on the Pacific side, and so even though they're very close to New Orleans because basically the economics is keeping grain vessels out of the out of the Panama Canal you're seeing even even shipments to those central markets or even that the Pacific ports in Colombia now being loaded off the P&W. Not 100%, mm-hmm. but we've seen probably maybe about half of that tonnage being switched to to being loaded off the P&W. Well, and of course, it's uh, you know speaks to our capabilities here in the US, of course, you know when it, when it's easier to move commodities off the PNW. We have that infrastructure. We've seen it before with low water on the Mississippi, for instance. We've had the shift to the PNW or the Great Lakes. We have the capability here in the U.S. to to move this grain uh, when it's a little bit easier in certain situations. Yeah, very much. I mean, you have a regular amount of 
you know, whether it's corn or soybeans, uh, soybean meal, wheat that's moving off the P and W anyways. Mm-hmm. But this we're probably you know we're seeing shifts, so probably even higher demand off the P and W than we normally would see this time of year. And obviously, you know, if I'm shipping corn off the P and W, that means I'm loading unit trains somewhere in the in North Dakota, South Dakota, maybe Western mm-hmm. Minnesota, and so you know that should be a benefit to demand just in the, in this region as well. I know we're facing uh, plenty of competition increasing from South America, of course, but to that aspect, I know with the U.S. Cranes Council, you guys do a lot of work of opening new markets and expanding our current markets and our, our current uh, customer base here internationally. Uh, talk about some of the maybe the, the new markets that you're excited about here in 2024 that we're working on. Uh, well, there's always, you know, the, the new uh, up-and-coming markets, you know, Southeast Asia. Um, we see a lot of corn co-products going into the Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand markets. But, uh, you know, what what we may not necessarily think of as a new market, places like Japan or Europe, mm-hmm. um, are a new market in the form of ethanol. We've, we've done it, we do a lot of work around the world promoting uh, uh, grain exports in the form of grain ethanol. And so, you know, Canada is our big, big market to the north and work very closely with the Canadian industry. But, you know, even a mature market like a Japan or a Europe, the EU, um, on, on the corn side, Japan is very mature. It's still a large and important market, but it's very mature, maybe even starting to decline. But now we're moving uh, ethanol in the form of uh, ETBE. So you're taking ethanol to make ETBE instead of methanol. Um, but we see the Japanese looking to to go to direct blending of ethanol and in, in for for uh, auto transportation fuel, and they're extremely excited about SAF, the uh, sustainable aviation fuel, and, and having ethanol to jet, and that mm-hmm. conversion be a big part of what 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 Japan is going to do going forward. So even a mature market like Japan now is a growing market uh, for corn in the form of ethanol or, or uh, uh, and even ethanol to go into sustainable aviation fuel. Mm-hmm. So that you know that's that makes things exciting in that you know. We've been in Japan since 1961, um, very mature market. Now it's becoming an exciting growth potential market, and that's just one of many. Again, the European Union is the same thing. Uh, and so while we look for new and growing markets for all of the products, corn, barley, sorghum, and the different coal products, corn coal products, uh, but just the, the grain exports in the form of ethanol to new and exciting places, is, is in, and even India, we're moving, eth- we're moving corn in the form of, of ethanol to India today. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, uh, ethanol to jet and sustainable aviation fuel, there's a lot of excitement in the industry, both domestically and internationally right now for that. I, I, I hear about that constantly from folks, and I know it's it, it, we're getting there. We're, we're building the infrastructure, right? right? Building the infrastructure and then the policy. Whether yep. I mean, our, our, our counterparts, the National Corn Growers Association, are working on policy issues here in the U.S. We're working on policy issues in Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and, and the European Union, um, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, all these kind of... We want to make sure the policy is being set so when we, you know, even if... Uh, Ethanol to jet is is in Japan may come quicker than we others, but as that as that becomes reality, we want to make sure the policies in place so that grain based, corn based ethanol can be part of that and aren't locked out because of some kind of policy saying, well, we want to go a sustainable aviation fuel, but grain based ethanol mm-hmm. can't be part of it. And so, working very hard to, as as those policies are being set today for the demand, whether it's in 2028 or 2030, coming down the line, that we're not locked out of those markets going forward. Uh, final thoughts, Kerry. What do you want farmers and ranchers to to take away uh, as they begin? 
the new year and, and they're looking at the year ahead, what do you want them to know about uh, the work that U.S. Grains Council is doing right now? Well, just the importance of trade. I, I, and obviously, you know, we, I'm sure we're at price levels that most farmers would not prefer to see. If we didn't have the trade, we, we are in corn exports are up about 33, 34% versus this same time a year ago. And so we're seeing that come back um, and the importance of that. Uh, and then the, the checkoff system, you know, the North North Dakota Corn Utilization Council and the, the support we receive them through the checkoff system allows us to go do what we do around the world um, and allows us to go into places like Brussels or Tokyo and try to make sure those policies are being set for sustainable aviation fuel going forward. And so it, it, it comes back to the, the checkoff levels at the state um, that, that feed into us. It allows us to get access to USDA funding to take and expand that, that checkoff dollar we get here from the North Dakota corn farmers and expand it by 10 or more uh, fold. And, and that allows us to, to have people on the ground and develop markets around the world because developing markets is not a, a 30 day or, or even a, a, a one year adventure. It's usually multi-year uh, and something you have to keep working on uh, on a regular basis. Kerry, great thoughts. Appreciate a conversation. Thanks for joining us here today on the show and we will look forward to talking to you again in the future. Sure, thank you much. All right, up next we'll hear a conversation with Brian Burke from John Stewart and Associates on Market Talk. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button, or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Keeping you informed with the latest market information for your operation. This is Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk today. Well, let's go back to yesterday. I was at the agmarket.net conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Had a great market discussion with the president of John Stewart & Associates, Brian Burke. Here is that interview on Market Talk. AgMarket.net is a division of John Stewart and Associates, and with us right now, President of JSA Brian Burke is with us. Brian, it's good to see you again. We got to chat last year at this event, so thanks for making the time to join me again. No, pleasure to be here. It's always a fun time. Let's talk about these grain markets a little bit as a whole, and I know from your perspective, you work a lot on the end user side, so we can get into that discussion as well. But I guess just to start, Brian, I feel like the the overwhelming sentiment in these markets has been bearish for the last couple of months. It feels like all that weight has kind of gone over to one side of the boat, so to speak, here. Is that the general sense you kind of have of this grain and oil seed trade right now, is that it's just overwhelmingly bearish? Yeah, I the, the, the positions in the marketplace today are very clear. I mean, this isn't even really an opinion question. You can look at the speculative community on the Chicago Board of Trade, and for several weeks now in January, we've had some of the largest short positions uh, by managed money in corn and soybeans that we've had any time in more than 20 years. So the, the bearish bets of that community are generally one of the better indicators of market sentiment. There are other baskets of, of, of traders out there, but the ones who move 
a significant amount of positions, money, and dollars, both from the long or the short side, is managed money, and they are clearly bearish. And, and thinking about the managed money, I've had a few people ask this question on, on Twitter here lately. You know, uh, Someone even made the joke, I'd love to hear someone talk to the you know, quote-unquote managed money crowd. I mean, are, are we talking largely like Wall Street type investors that are throwing money into the commodities. Can, can you define a little bit more what that managed money crowd is for some folks? Sure. I mean, from a managed money standpoint, yes, it is a very broad term. And when you think about the large banks, uh, you know, again, we'll, we'll name several to not pick on anybody, but sure. the JP Morgan's, the Morgan Stanley's, the Goldman Sachs, all of those types of banks have money managers that trade various asset classes. Mm-hmm. The ones you see on, on CNBC and, and, and Fox Business or whatever every day, most of those are trading that equity b- asset class. Mm-hmm. We're talking about those that trade pools of money in the agricultural asset class. So it's, it's that group of people. Now, they, they generally tend to look at the market more broadly. Um, they're not going to get too deep into the weeds on on yield or this or that in any mm-hmm. one given country at any one given time, they're looking at how interest rates affect commodities. They're looking at how the value of the dollar uh, affects uh, general ag commodity exports out of the U.S. They're looking more holistically at global balances. They're, look at, they're looking at China and, and, and the economic downdraft that China has had and, what, and knowing through a lot of research just how detrimental that is to agricultural consumption around the world when you take the largest buyer in the world and, and, and give it a bit of a hangover, which is what it has. Yeah, and China's been such a big topic in these markets here as of late, and I think the demand from China or lack thereof, China's been shifting a lot to South America, of course. So let's, let's talk a little bit on that end user side. What are some of the things you are seeing here in the U.S. right now and in terms of everything we're seeing with China it's in their shift to South America. I mean, talk about some of those changing dynamics that, that end users are watching a little bit closely. Well, end users are, are, are adjusting to a, a new structure that's in the marketplace. End users have been in an inverted cash environment for three years. And what I mean by that is the highest price on, on the board is the spot price. Mm-hmm. And when we're in a supply deficit or demand-driven market, one or two drivers there are both uh, leaning towards an inverted market. The, the end users are always worried about how do I extend my ownership and how do I gain more ownership because, and avoid having to pay those spot premiums. And we have completely flipped that structure for an end user today. Right now, the cheapest price on the board is the nearby price. The cheapest they're going to pay for corn is in the nearby versus going out and saying buying June, July corn today. Mm-hmm. So what we advise end users in markets like this is you don't want to have a lot of ownership. You want to have whatever is logistically feasible, maybe 30 days, maybe 45 days, but you certainly don't want six months of ownership. And that's a, a, a complete 180 of the market that we've been in um, that was much more inverted and, and, and demand-driven or and or just the supply deficits were there that you worried about making sure you, you, you had access to it by mm-hmm. the time we got to the end of the crop year. It's a complete 180. Yeah. So how does that affect then downstream to, you know, cash basis, farmers, and, and you know, they're holding a lot of grain on farms still. They haven't sold a lot because they're not loving the price. So I have to think it's kind of that trickle-down effect, so to speak, right? Exactly. Yep. I mean, right now, farmers are, are the large long in the marketplace. And, and, and let's, let's face it, farmers at some level, are always 
long. It's mm-hmm. the, you, further you go out in time, you're going to find the fact. You know, he, he's inherently long all the time, but his his level of length mirrors the lack of ownership by the end user. And, and so those two things are going to be at odds as we go into the spring. What I'm fearful of and how that trickles down, especially to the producer level, is if we take an outsized amount of corn and soybeans, most, mostly corn when I make this statement, if we take an outsized movement after pollination, that's going to be a significantly larger amount of bushels trying to hit the market all at the same time. And that is a that is a bearish condition in the market. That's a bearish opinion to have, and I think end users have that opinion, which is why they're not buying June July corn today. They would mm-hmm. much rather buy it there when it's cheaper. When when the perception is it will be cheaper. Obviously, we have a lot of competition from Brazil right now. There's sure. been some talk here at the conference that Brazil could add, you know, 50 million acres in the next 10 years, you know, things like that. So, I mean, how much is the competition from South America playing into some of the thoughts here uh, for U.S. end users and more? What do you think about that? Well, uh, I I think the U.S. has been losing market share in corn and soybeans to South America for quite some time. That's not new. Yeah. Um, This last year, Brazil was the largest exporter of corn, which which was kind of that proud status that the U.S. had for a long, long time. I think domestic consumption is a bit more of a focus of the United States, whether that be with renewable fuels policies and um, the renewable diesel build-out that we're seeing on the soy crush side, certainly 15 years ago when we talked more about the ethanol build-out. So the way the U.S. has has um, grown its agricultural base has been much more driven by domestic consumption policies. And I think South America, the way they're growing their production base and, and, and benefiting on the production expansion is by expanding their export markets. So it's, we're, we're both growing, mm-hmm. but we're both growing for different reasons. I prefer the value-added reason, but it does, it does take policy. It does take uh, sometimes a bit more time. Um, but I, I, I do believe the, the, uh, the route of the U.S. going with a larger and larger percentage of our corn, soybeans, and wheat production being turned into value-added products of all sorts in this country is a solid path. Sometimes we just outproduce that path from a timing standpoint. Sure. And thinking of that timing, too, as we talk renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, the expansion of soy crush here in the U.S., I mean, what's your thought, what's your perspective on, on where that's at right now? I know we just saw that that sustainable aviation fuel plant come online in Georgia here a few weeks ago. Uh, I mean, realistically... 2025, 2026, even this year? I mean, what are your thoughts with what you're seeing about the expansion on that side of the ledger? If we're just talking about sustainable aviation fuel, that that expansion is going to take significantly more time to become meaningful. It, okay. it, it, it is still in a um, research and development phase. It, the cost of production is still very prohibitive of any kind of commercialization without pretty heavy subsidies. Um, and, it, and it's not in that much of a different condition than what ethanol was in in 2006. See, we had that federal policy. There was, there was um, uh, blender credits and things like that that we had for several years promoting the expansion of ethanol and so forth. And I do think that we can see similar policies 
down the road on sustainable aviation fuel because it probably needs it. As we're figuring out the best feedstock, the, the, the best conversions, the best technology, that all needs investment in. And we've started that investment, but it is certainly three to five plus years away from commercialization. All right, Brian, before we run out of time, uh, give us some optimism maybe a little bit. We've kind of steered the conversation pretty bearish on you here, but give us some optimism. What are some things farmers uh, need to think about here ahead in the year 2024? What would you give them? I'd say two things. One, try to avoid the spot market because that's going to be the most punishing market. So get more forward with your marketing plan. And the other thing that I would leave you with is we're not going anywhere in the next two years that we haven't been before. Okay. We have had a 2015 to 2020 era that everyone would agree was not the most fun and profitable period of time. And it was followed by a cycle of of very strong returns. This is a cyclical business. Sometimes those cycles are a couple of years. Sometimes they're three to five. And we will continue to have cycles like that in our business. We just need to prepare um, for, the, for the more lean years. And, and we're probably in those right now for, for at least maybe another crop year or two. And, um, but it's a, it's a cyclical market, and it will certainly come around at another point in time. Yeah, no, good thoughts to share for sure. With that, Brian Burke, president of John Stewart & Associates. Brian, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again real soon. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, coming up next, we are going to talk livestock, dairy, and more with Robert Schmall from AgDairy at AgMarket.net on the way here on Market Talk. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice. And you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. The views and opinions of this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers. There is substantial risk of loss in trading futures and options, which you should carefully consider prior to trading. Keeping you informed with the latest market information for your operation. This is Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk. Well, more of our coverage from the agmarket.net conference in Nashville here the last couple of days, Sunday and Monday. I had a chance to sit down and talk the cattle inventory report, the latest milk production report, and more about the livestock trade with Robin Schmall from agmarket.net ag dairy. Here is that interview. Let's start with that cattle inventory report we got at the uh, middle of last week, end of January, technically. Um, you know, looking at the numbers, I guess to me, everything looked fairly neutral. Uh, your perspective uh, on the cattle inventory numbers, Robin? Yeah, you know, the trade generally reacts to how the numbers are relative to the analyst estimates. Mm-hmm. And so it was fairly neutral from what they had anticipated. Uh, looking at the bigger picture, yeah, we're down quite a bit on inventory. And, and with our heifer numbers... Uh, we're looking at a, more of a longer period of time before we can maybe see this herd start to rebuild. Sure. We haven't really seen the, the retention or the rebuilding of that at this point in time yet. That will happen at some point, but we haven't seen it now. So in the bigger picture, we are still, I'll, I'll say, very well supported. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that we're like overly bullish yeah. um, because there's other things that come into play. There's there's the supply and there's the demand. And um, I always say the standpoint of, 
if there's one cow left in the country and nobody wants it, mm -hmm. the price is too high. So that's the other side of that equation. But when we're looking at the numbers, we're looking at demand, um, export market, yeah, it's been a little bit mediocre lately, but box beef is starting to weaken again from what had its strength. Um, it does look like it's a supported market, and that, that report does show that on the bigger picture. There was a, quite a substantial revision to, I think it was last year's heifer number, I think it was like some 400,000. We were talking about this uh, here before we went on the air. Uh, that's a, I feel like that's a big deal in terms of looking at rebuilding this herd, isn't it, Robin? Yeah, when you're, when you're that much of a revision, which I don't understand how that can be that far off. I, I didn't either. That's the other thing. I was kind of scratching my head at that one for sure. Yeah, and I don't know if... Um, you know, the people just didn't have enough donuts or didn't have enough to eat before they, <laughs> they looked at that or, or somebody misunderstood what somebody mm -hmm. else said. But when you're looking at a, uh, such a revision, I mean, that's huge. I mean, I've, I've known revisions like that happening before, and it's been a huge impact in the market. Mm -hmm. Now, this really didn't have that quite of a substantial impact yet. Um, but it, again, it goes back to the standpoint of there's that much of a revision in there. Uh, it's going to prolong the potential for that market to rebuild sure. and to maybe move that pendulum back to the other side where mm -hmm. we're, we're a little bit more negative or should I say more well supplied than what we are right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's going to be curious, I think, to watch uh, throughout this year with uh, heifer retention and, and things of that nature, you know, the economics I think we could argue, are they there? Are they not there to start rebuilding the herd? There's, there's a lot that goes into uh, whatever we do in terms of a herd rebuild, herd expansion, isn't there, Robin? Yeah, there's a lot there. I know that our interest rates are higher now. Yep. I mean, we're looking at high prices for feeder cattle, calves. Um, so the key there is going to be if you're going to be buying some of these animals for down the road, you got to make sure that you can cover yourself on the other side mm -hmm. because a lot of things can happen. Um, now, you know, with the Fed not looking that or looking that we might be where they want it to be, interest rates might not be increasing here. But, but then you're looking at the feed side of the equation, facility side of the equation, marketing side of the equation. And feed prices look now like they're going to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe even cheaper. So that kind of takes that off the table from the concern we had before. But then the bigger thing is going to be the weather. Is El Nino going to be hanging around a little bit more? Could we see a little bit of more dryness into the, the Plains states, uh, the cattle country? Then that will prolong that rebuilding process mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of working parts in there. Uh, that we got to be careful. We just don't camp on one or two things. Yeah. Talk to me about the dairy numbers uh, we've seen with the cattle inventory report. And I know we just had a milk production report as well here. So we've had a lot of dairy data lately. And I know you had some thoughts about that to share with folks. Yeah, the biannual inventory report or the, the inventory report for the all cattle. Uh, we did see uh, a decrease for January from the previous year, January, for milk cows of 41,000 head, we saw a decrease in the heifer numbers or the replacement heifers of 15,000 head. Um, but we're looking at the ratio of replacements to dairy cattle 
almost identical as last year, mm -hmm. which was about 43.4%. Now you have to make a comparison January to January to January because January and July numbers are always different for some reason. But otherwise, if you're looking at the January inventory on replacement heifers, it was the lowest ratio to cow numbers since 1998. Wow. And that goes to the point of when we're looking at um, the heifer market right now, replacement market, it's tight, and heifer prices continue to grow, go higher. I mean, we're looking at $2,700, $2,800 for a replacement heifer when we got milk prices as low as they are. It's, it's not usually that way. So um, these farms that are going out of business, there's a big demand for the dairy cows now, so they're not going to slaughter. So we saw a really slow, a little slaughter number on the livestock slaughter report. So one of the big things there might be the beef on dairy push. Yes. Which is putting less heifers available out into the market. Um, and again, that's something that like the whole beef market can't change overnight. You know, there's nobody has a bag of heifer seed in the shed where they can put water on and all of a <laughs> sudden we have more heifers. It's a longer-term process, and well, that could be more bullish to the dairy industry a little bit later down the road. Not mm -hmm. saying it's going to be, but uh, at this point in time, but that's been pretty significant as far as that inventory report is concerned. And then we would look at milk production. Um, our, our milk production for the last year was almost on par with the previous year. USDA is still predicting about 4 billion pounds more this next year but that's a monthly moving target. Um, we, we're, we have less cows, but our milk production per cow has been growing and it's been stronger. So we keep making strides in that aspect of it, production per cow. But one thing we're seeing overall is even with the low milk prices, farmers are wanting to produce milk mm -hmm. and they're not pulling back right now like we saw in 2021 where we started seeing some really heavy culling that's not happening right now. So they want to produce milk. That's the nature of the business. Uh, we produce milk when the price goes lower. We want to get the most we can out of the cows. And when the price goes higher, we want to get the most we can out of the cows. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just the nature of the business. And that's, that's not wrong. Yeah. Because we can't jump in and out like a manufacturing plant. It's a business, and that's what we have to do. Very, very true. Very, very true. Robin, I know you look at the entire livestock arena as well. I'd love some thoughts on this hog market right now. Feels like hogs have maybe found a base to some degree here the last month or so. Your thoughts on what we're seeing right now in this hog market overall? Yeah, it seems like we found a base. Um, we've been seeing the cash market see some nice strides over the last month. Um, we've seen just in the last export sales report, a doubled export sales of the previous week. Mm -hmm. And that was, seemed to be like that's what was happening prior to the re report coming out. And that's why they were much stronger on cash. Uh, cutouts really are just kind of drifting along at this point in time. But there's been some talk about the the PERS disease that's been having a greater impact than what's really being reported right now. Uh, so it's possible, we don't have the numbers bearing that out yet, but it's possible that we could be seeing a tightening in that hog supply. And I don't think hogs are gonna continue to shoot up like cattle did. 
because uh, we're not in that type of a posture, mm -hmm. but we seem to be found uh, have found some good solid support under it right now. But that's not going to be without some market retracements. But I would venture to say that probably the worst is behind us at least for a period of time. How much has the collapse in Chinese hog prices had any impact in our market? I I, I really think that ours when. When Hong Kong or China came out and said, we want to reduce our hog herd because of the African swine fever problems they have, well, the market did react somewhat at the beginning, and the anticipation is, is of greater export opportunity. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're starting to see that, like I said, with the weekly export sales. Yeah. If that continues to be strong, and China's always in there as maybe a, one of the top three buyers, I think we're going to see more evidence of that. Robin, uh, about a minute here. Final thoughts. What should livestock folks be thinking about next 60 to 90 days here in terms of their risk management? What would you say? Well, I think you have to take some opportunities on this movement up and to lay some floors in. And, and, and I know that it's gotten a lot of popularity lately, but this livestock risk protection insurance has really gained a lot of interest. And I think that's a really good way to try to put some floors in on your price or, if nothing else, do some option strategies, put options. I don't recommend this personally. I don't recommend doing a forward contracts because there is potential for quite a bit of upside, mm -hmm. but doing something that allows a lot of flexibility. And so those two things, I think, are a necessity when you're buying those feeder cattle and calves at the exorbitant prices they are right now. Robin Schmall with Ag Dairy, agmarket.net. Always great to have a conversation with you, sir. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Yeah, and it's great to be here personally with you in Nashville. Definitely, definitely it is. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it, Robin. Thank you. All right, we will be back to wrap up Market Talk here today on the way right after the break. If you miss an episode of Market Talk, you can listen back to the show anytime. Just search for Market Talk on your podcast platform of choice, and you can hear past episodes of the program on demand. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button, or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Bringing you the ag information you need. This is Market Talk. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now for a conversation as we are here at the Northern Corn and Soy Expo. It, is, uh, it has been a great show. It's put on by the uh, soybean and uh, corn folks here across the state of North Dakota. And joining us now in the North Dakota Soybean Council, Rob Rose is with us. He is the vice chairman of District 5 as well. And uh, he's from District 5, I should say. Rob, thanks for being with us here at the Expo. And uh, Great turnout. Uh, really, really good show. New venue this year out at the Red River Valley Fairgrounds, but uh, great attendance, and I feel like things have been really, really good so far, Rob. Yeah, I, I think things are rolling along just fine here, and uh, we got, um, I don't know what we have for vendors here, but I guess there's well over 20, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people stopping and visiting at the booths, and we've had some really good speakers so far. There's more to come this afternoon. Um, right now, there's lunch going on in the building next door. 
And uh, I just came from there. It was really good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, too, the beauty of having the speakers, you hear a lot of great information. I know a lot of national folks here uh, talking to farmers, but also, you know, going around the trade show, a lot of those conversations that we like to have, you know, at the coffee shop or whatever the case is, uh, at the diner, you know, farmers getting a chance, taking advantage of nice weather here and, and getting able to uh, able to kind of talk shop a little bit. That's always a good thing, isn't it, Rob? Yeah, and you know, North Dakota is a fairly big state, but um, a lot of us went on to higher education, so we've met people there and, and we've met people through other um, things such as the Soybean Council and um you know, it's a good place for everyone to get together. And I've mm-hmm. last year, uh, not, not this year, but last year, I ran into a, a gentleman that I hadn't seen um, just about 40 years. Lived next door to me at NDSU in the dorm. And I, I mean, that kind of stuff I find really cool to reconnect, especially with, with old friends and make some new friends. Yeah. Well, and you guys get to connect and also talk about uh, different things throughout the ag industry. And on the soy side here, especially in North Dakota, I know uh, a lot of these crush plants coming online. That is a, a really exciting thing right now for, for soybean growers and the soybean industry here, specifically in North Dakota. Right, Rob? Right. You know, and uh, traditionally, I'm not just North Dakota, but uh, South Dakota and other states, we've relied on uh, the rail to PNW and mainly being um, China, the main market, working into um, Southeast Asia for whole beans they they crush for meal and feed their poultry and pork. But uh, this this crush plant thing is it's something that's been going on in other states for several years. We finally have one up and running. We got another one, um, I would say, half half completed. I just by driving by, I can see that there's a lot of activity there, and then. Another proposed one uh, to the north that is possibly going to mm-hmm. come on through. So that um, capability to crush 75% of our soybeans with those three facilities online. Well, and I know, too, on top of that, uh, with the North Dakota Soybean Council, you guys are able to fund uh, a lot of research. And I know you guys have plenty of research projects and, and things like that going on. And I know you uh, you oversee a lot of the education outreach as well. I mean, talk about some of those things and some of the work that you guys are, are doing here this year. Yeah, so I, I'm the chair of the uh, Outreach Education uh, Committee, and uh, we've got a very good committee, a very good um, staff that's working um, with us for us. Uh, we've got some educational things going on in schools. They've uh, they've got some educational uh, ability uh, to bring bring kids into sure, um, sure. teach them about our our uh, agriculture in general and soybeans the uses and different things. And uh, we also uh, fund uh, some biodiesel education out of our committee, and um, also through the market development committee. And you know the big thing. Um, this oil going out of green bison to uh, marathon is renewable, but we still uh, we still count on a, a biodiesel blend. I use it on my farm, B20. Mm-hmm. So we fund a lot of that. The research um, goes uh, runs a gamut from uh, um, new varieties at the NDSU breeding program to uh, robotic uh, plastics that are made with soybean oil and um, soy-based twine. Um, there's... It, it's uh, it's crazy. A lot of things going on. Yeah, a lot of new uses out there for soybeans, for sure, and uh, of course, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of expansion of soybean acres here across the northern plains in the last few years and more. And uh, thinking about this year ahead, uh, what are you hearing from from farmers here at attendance as they're thinking about that 
spring acreage. What are you thinking about on your farm? I mean, I know corn, bean acres, there's always uh, kind of that typical rotation, but are you hearing anything different this year, Rob? Um, right in my area, a lot of people in my area, we raise more than just corn and soybeans. We have um, dry edible beans and wheat sure. and barley. And we kind of stick to that. Um, we stick to our rotation almost because we have to for different reasons. But also the last two years in my area, um, there's been a high amount of prevent plant. And all of us mm -hmm. all of us in that area are hoping that we can get all our acres planted for one thing. And I, I think uh, soybeans, you know, you can plant later. And I, I see that uh, those acres mostly going to soybeans if we can get them all in. Yeah, well, that's something, uh, of course, weather. You know, we never know what's going to happen with the weather uh, here across the northern tier. It's nice right now during the expo, and we could be seeing, uh, you know, snow flying in, in April. You know, it's right. it's one of the challenges uh, of sometimes of, of Mother Nature, isn't it, Rob? Yeah, and we all fight this. We fight this battle, whether you're just out of high school or you're nearing retirement. It's just something that we deal mm -hmm. with. And, um, you get asked by people that, you know, don't live this life, how you handle that pressure. And I guess it was, we just, uh, we learn from our dad and grandpa how to mm -hmm. kind of handle it, I guess. Very true. Well, I know if folks uh, want to stay up to date with all the work that the North Dakota Soybean Council is doing. NDSoybean.org, I'm sure, is a great place to stay in touch. That's a good way to get you there. Yep. Yep. NDSoybean.org. We've been talking with Rob Rose from the North Dakota Soybean Council. And, Rob, thanks for joining us here at the uh, Expo. Appreciate the time. We'll talk to you again soon. No problem. Thank you. And once again, Rob Rose there with the North Dakota Soybean Council joining us here as we are wrapping up our broadcast from the Northern Corn and Soy Expo in Fargo today. Uh, really a great time here today at the show and appreciate the hospitality of the North Dakota Soybean Growers and uh, Soybean Council along with the North Dakota Corn Council and the North Dakota Corn Growers Association. Appreciate their uh, hospitality and uh, letting us uh, hang out here for the day. Great event, great speakers in their new location on the Red River Valley Fairgrounds. It was a, uh, a really a good place to be here uh, today. We're going to have more conversations coming up throughout the week as we keep an eye on the market movements. Of course, the WASD on Thursday, that's going to be a uh, potential market mover as well here. But overall, Tuesday's market action. Pretty quiet in the grains, mixed around unchanged. That's going to do it for Market Talk. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.